This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Dana Telsey. And if you uh, follow retail stocks at all for any period of time, you should probably know the name Telsey. She's been an analyst uh, and a fixture on financial media for a long time. She is just full of energy, covers a ton of stuff. You, you may have to slow this podcast down because between the two of us, we were both speaking so quickly. By coincidence, we both used to have our offices in the same building, and I was always bumping into her, usually when she was running out of the building to catch a plane or, or something like that. She's pretty much always in motion. I find her really fascinating. She covers a lot of retail and does it in a way that I don't know if other retail analysts spend nearly as much time as she and her colleagues do in stores with management, kicking tires, looking at looking at malls, looking at, at various shopping experiences, looking at all these different channels that consumers could go out and consume goods. Um, she's, she's one of the most uh, intriguing and uh, highly ranked retail analysts on the street. If you are at all interested in any of the consumer and retailing stocks, and that's everything from Apple and Amazon to Lord and Taylor's, Nordstrom, Macy's to things like Starbucks or or Shake Shack. Her firm is called the Telsey Advisory Group or TAG. Get it? Retail TAG. Um, they really cover everything. They do a, 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 a pretty substantial job. They're highly, highly regarded. And I find talking to her about retail to be a whirlwind. She she may be the single most knowledgeable person I've ever encountered when it comes to uh, the world of, of retail, consumer spending, retail shopping, retail sales, and all the companies that exist within it. So if you are at all interested in that space, I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Dana Telsey. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, my special guest is Dana Telsey of the Telsey Advisory Group. She is a retail analyst extraordinaire. I've been following Dana for forever. She was an analyst, institutional investor, top rated for 13 years. You were at Bear Stearns for a good couple of years, right? Yeah, I was there for 12 years. 12 years, and and we'll talk about her timing in her exit was perfect. Dana Telsey, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much, Barry. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. My my pleasure. So you began with Ron Barron, which was a $17 billion firm, and you really started at the bottom, right? You began as a secretary. I was Ron's assistant. I was so fortunate. I grew up in the city. He lived in the same building as my family. And I knew him from when he first started the company. So I learned from best in class a pro. Mm -hmm. And he taught me how to understand stocks, how to understand companies, and also how to read management teams. He believes in long-term investing. He believes in GARP, value at a reasonable price. And he basically believes in the brand of a business. Can it grow? And that's what I learned from Ron. I was so fortunate. So so you start working really at a very junior position and mm-hmm. eventually you get you go through the CFA process, is that right? MBA process. MBA process, mm-hmm. okay. I went so, at night to business school. So you get your MBA and then how do you then morph into a full time 
analyst. Went to the sell side on the brokerage side. Mm -hmm. And frankly, before that, I was fortunate to be in a buy side investor group of some of the best names in the business, mm -hmm. like Steve Mandel of Lone Pine, where we got to exchange ideas on a monthly basis. And then I went to the sell side and basically went to CJ Lawrence, which was a terrific platform, fantastic people. And I got to learn how analysts sell their product. And basically, that's why it's called sell side mm -hmm. to the buy side. I was there for three years before they got acquired by Deutsche Bank mm -hmm. and then was at Bear Stearns for 12 years. You were at Bear Stearns for a long time. How do you morph into a retail analyst from really, did you start as a generalist or were you always attracted to retail? I've tried everything. When I was at Ron's firm and he gave me the latitude, I tried being a trader. I tried being a salesperson. And what I liked about it is I liked being, a, being an expert. I really liked the idea of no, doing research, talking with companies, talking with experts, and understanding and pulling apart the 10Ks and the 10Qs because it all tells a story. So I'm about storytelling. So, so what makes following retail different than other types of um, analysts? There, there's a very different energy and a very different focus for, for the people who follow the retailers than the people who follow tech or finance or what have you. So keep in mind, yes, I work for Ron Barron, but since I grew up in the city, my family had a bookstore on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was cash register number one, my mother was cash register number two, and I was cash register number three. So being able to understand that retail is detail and understand the complexity of the story, that's what makes retail fun. You could feel it, you can go in a store, you can talk to customers, but today the world's changed because online and the internet has really made things different than what it was, but you need physical and digital in order to really capture the consumer. We're, we're going to spend some more time talking about online in a little bit, but I recall back when you were at Bear Stearns, you were notorious for doing a lot of, of what, what you call research, what I would call shopping, but you literally, my wife calls it retail therapy, <laughs> you literally during the holidays and during major seasons you're checking off boxes. You're going to thousands and thousands of stalls, stores and locations. How aggressive are you? Aggressively are you out in the actual retail environment? Constantly. I mean, I believe that you can't sit at your desk and know what's happening in the field. So essentially, everywhere from Chicago and Boston last week, the West Coast, I was in London Monday and Tuesday of this week. I need to be able to feel it myself. What's moving? What's checking? What's left on sale? What bags are the consumers? carrying and how is the sales staff approaching them if you don't feel it yourself you're not going to know what a brand is so retail is detail and the pulse of it to me is being able to see the shoppers how much do you put yourself at risk for falling prey to anecdotal evidence we all know manhattan is in america it's a very different place and i'm constantly checking myself as we're first coming out of the recession Gee, well, it looks like things are doing pretty well now when the rest of the country clearly wasn't wasn't where Manhattan was post bailouts. That's why I do those shopping tours around the country. And that's why my team and I, whether they're in Tennessee, whether they're in California, whether they're in Chicago, you can't these companies have thousands of stores. So at least you're gonna get a pulse and you're gonna get a read what's working. And frankly, having combined that also on the international scope, that helps too. Seeing what a Primark could mean in the US when Primark is based in the UK, and that's where their real retail presence is, along with the continent of Europe. I want to know what the US has now and what's coming and what could be impacting it. I look for change. How important are the macro environments? Do you look at things like 
interest rates, inflation, the the cost of the dollar. What does the macro concerns do to a for a retail analyst? A lot. I mean, look at today. It's all about tax reform. What's it going to mean? What could it mean? What do these border-adjusted taxes mean? The macro provides the framework, and companies need to curate the landscape. So I'm constantly looking at it because it gives a gauge. Macro provides the framework, and the companies... Companies need to curate for the landscape. So what I mean by that is, well, all of a sudden, unemployment is getting lower. Well, then what should companies be doing, whether in discretionary goods, in price points, in articles that they're selling? Should it be different? Should it be more luxurious goods or what could be a little bit more expensive is consumers can afford it. Companies today have more data and know more about their customer than ever, both from online and from physical. Therefore, balancing inventory with what consumers really want is something they're able to manage better today than they were in the past. Macro helps provide that. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dana Telsey. She is best known as a retail analyst. She runs the Telsey Advisory Group and spent a dozen years or so at Bear Stearns. Let's talk a little bit about online retail. Uh, this holiday season, it seems like like every other year, it's Amazon and everybody else. Is is that still the case? That is still the case. It is Amazon and then everyone else. Whether you're a physical retailer, people are talking about, do you sell on Amazon? Whether you're a digital retailer, do you want to sell on Amazon? And essentially, it's new categories and new brands that are emerging. All of a sudden, businesses like Consignment, The Real Real, or ThreadUp, or Tradesy, that's what we're hearing emerge. But Amazon has not been that strong in apparel. They've been stronger in other categories because Amazon is more of an item business. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they'll learn that too. And we think Amazon is going to continue to be someone and continue to be a business model that needs to be studied carefully. Well, they did the Zappos acquisition, which Mm -hmm. was for shoes and and sneakers. Uh, I think they did that as much to learn that business as anything else. But are are apparel different than... Look, we all buy books and and those of us who still buy CDs and DVDs, as well as electronics and gadgets on on Amazon. Can you translate the fit and feel of a garment uh, from a real store to online? Or is that always going to be a big advantage to physical brick and mortar retailers? The word always is a dangerous word because it always, always changes. Mm -hmm. And what we've been seeing is that on Amazon, it feels to us like the best-selling items are some of the Replenishment items in apparel, underwear, for example, right. seems very strong. Yet, in other co- words, you know what you're going to get, and now you're just price shopping to replace stuff. Yep, repeatable, replenishable purchase. Mm-hmm. But collection items and designer wear, that doesn't do as well. We're not seeing brands look to adopt Amazon yet because they're not putting them in an environment that's unique and differentiated for them. That's today. We'll see what happens over the next few years. If as they scale the business, I'm holiday shopping. I'm looking for something fun and funky. Bloomberg actually had a best pajamas to buy, and they ranged from fifty bucks to nine hundred dollars. And uh, somewhere in the middle, about one hundred and fifty dollars, I found this great set of pajamas. I couldn't find it on Amazon. I ordered it from the manufacturer, and then I went back and I did tweak the search a little bit, and lo and behold. The right size, the right color comes up in that manufacturer, and um, and it was five dollars cheaper on Amazon than from the retailer direct. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and isn't everyone an Amazon Prime member? It certainly seems what they've done with Prime. The synonym for Amazon is the word scale, and as they put more categories, 
to basically make you want to continue renewing that Prime membership, like what they're doing with media. It's all encompassing the in content. lifestyle. Yes, it's So it's Amazon Music, Amazon Video, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing. And the latest thing I discovered on Amazon, and I don't want to just talk about Amazon, uh, over the summer we bought a TV, it's for the basement, by the treadmill, and months go by and I don't hang it, and finally it's like, all right, I got to get this thing up. And I go back to the store, I got it, and they want $400 to install it, and I'm like, that's what the TV cost thanks i go back do a google search thinking angie's list or something will come up amazon comes up it's 69 dollars to have a television hung on the wall it's amazing and then you realize oh wait a second they're just a matchmaker between the consumer and the service provider and they take their pound of flesh. It costs them nothing to do this. It's pretty amazing. I mean, and now they're focused on that last mile. They want to be able to make sure that you're getting what you need when you want it because they want you to renew that Prime membership. So so you could do plumbing. You could do yard work. You could do contracting. You could do – there's a whole run of Amazon services mm-hmm. that I had no idea that they actually provided. It, it It's quite astonishing. So, so outside of Amazon and Amazon Home Services and – and all that stuff. Who else is doing online right? I think you're seeing things from the real real. I think Wayfair is doing interesting things online. Mm-hmm. I think what you've seen from Bonobos, what you've seen from Dollar Shave Club, I think there's Revolve Clothing is pretty interesting in terms of what they're doing. I think what, there's a what lot- are they doing that's kind of unique? We've all seen the Dollar Shave Club videos. They were great. Right. The company was what, wasn't it? Yes. For a not insubstantial amount yes. of money. There's a terrific conference called Shop Talk. It began last year, and they basically brought physical and digital together. And it's going to be held this year also on March 19th. And that's where you see some of the newest online retailers and how they're growing and how they're becoming physical too, because physical retailers need to better embrace digital also. That, that, that's, that's fascinating. Amongst um, out. Outside of Amazon, who else from pure digital, not having a physical shop, who else is, is catching your eye? I think just not having a pure physical shop, but just on the on the digital side, I think there's a lot of interest in social media things. Mm-hmm. What Snapchat is doing, what Pinterest is doing, that's really interesting to me. Are they converting their user activity to actual retail sales or at least to retail prospects driving traffic Seems to stores? Seems like it. I mean, look at the line that's held at the, Sna- at the Snapchat pop-up shop-, shop here on 60th between 5th and Madison. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants those virtual reality glasses. Mm-hmm. Look at Instagram. I have an office filled with people who are consumers, people who like to consume. And frankly, they're learning about new trends, new retailers, new online sites all through Instagram. A picture is worth more than a thousand words. That's interesting. What about the um, brick-and-mortar retailers? Which of the physical stores are actually have a good digital um, positioning? you got to give the department stores credit. Macy's, Nordstrom have done a very good job at integrating physical and digital, and it's growing fast for them. And I think you're seeing other players look at Walmart. Walmart basically now believes online is central to their strategy. I know that if I go to a Lord & Taylor or a Macy's and I want something and they either don't have the right color, don't have the right size, every salesperson will say, oh, we can have that shipped to you for free if you want this one in this color. Uh, we can run it. It'll, you'll have it in a, a week. No one wants to lose a sale. Everyone wants you, the shopper, to think of them as in stock all the time and be retail loyal. And how do you get loyalty? 
You get loyalty by service, you get loyalty by price and convenience, and that's what they're offering. So you mentioned price. What does online do to price competition? Are we still seeing the same sort of showrooming that was an issue a couple of years ago? You are. Price transparency is one of the biggest competitors for all of retailers and e-tailers. And so how how do you break price transparency? Exclusive items, more innovation, basically being able to communicate with your customer. Service is the killer app these days. And being able to be communicative, even in-store and out-of-store, I think makes you feel part of the club. Service is the killer app. Feels like it. I mean, when you can have sales associates, people who chat online with you, if you are customized to them, why do you think you're seeing the mobile phone right now is becoming so important to consumers because they're using it for everything? It's not only their work lives, but it's their personal lives, too, that help create transactions and complete transactions. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dana Telsey of the Telsey Advisory Group. She is a top-rated institutional investor analyst for 13 years, Uh, spent a lot of time at Bear Stearns before launching her own firm. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the retail footprint and whether or not we've we've overbuilt it. It seems that every major town has two malls and the old mall is kind of struggling and the new mall is all bright and shiny. And you wonder, have we built too much retail physical space in America? We've had a lot of physical space in America. And yes, you have space that isn't as productive as others. And that's why you see the differentiation between the A malls and the Bs and the C malls. It really is about the right malls, and they're all changing right now. The occupancy, the the um, occupancy levels, and also the rents in those A malls, that's where everyone wants to be because you're creating a community of best-in-class tenants that also retailers and restaurants invest in to continue to make it better. So I am not a big mall shopper. If I could stay out of the malls, I'm I'm a very happy camper. But where I live, if there, there's certain specific stores you want to go to, like let's call it, say, the Bloomingdale uh, Furniture Store, or um, by me, if I want to go to the one of the big sporting goods stores, they're attached to a mall. And not too long ago, before the holiday season, I walked through part of Roosevelt Field, and I didn't recognize it. It's totally different than what it used to be. What Simon has done in Roosevelt Field, it looks terrific. Look at that Neiman Marcus there. Look at the center court area of the of The Roosevelt food court Field. is really nice. I was shocked. Mm-hmm. It used to be, you know, junk this and garbage that. It's really good high-end food. Malls today need to be experiential, not just a place for buying things. They're offering restaurants. You know what the new name for movie theaters are? Wine, dine, and recline, because there's a new way to go to movie theaters these days. And I think that's what you're going to see these shopping centers or retail real estate become, places where consumers spend time not only to meet people, not only to buy things, but more physical time by offering more services within the center. So what does that mean in terms of the the cost structure of rentals for for retailers? This this looks like, and Roosevelt is a perfect example, this doesn't look like a down and dirty, fast and cheap renovation. It looks like they really put some time and effort and money into it. Uh, what are rents are going to be? What are rents going to be like for retailers? For these A malls, rents are going to be high, and the reason retailers will pay those types of rents, those centers drive the most traffic, have the most complimentary mix of tenants, mm-hmm. and 
are always fully occupied. So we continue to see demand for those centers being tremendous. So who is who else? You mentioned Simon's Group. Who else is doing the sort of large-scale retail well? Look at General Growth Properties. They happen to be doing a very good job also. What's happening in the Natick Mall is very exciting. They've had tremendous changes and an uplift in their centers too, and even with the latest parking technology. The latest parking technology. Red light, green light. If you think about what consumers today get frustrated about going to a shopping center, finding a parking spot. For sure. They've made it easy with implementation of red light, green light. If you see red, spots occupied. If you see green, spots available. Really? And that's mm -hmm. making a difference with return business and people? Of course. Makes the ability, and when you think about what retailers are doing, buy online, pick up in store, it's one of the reasons it makes buy online, pick up in store easy, along with the fact that those consumers who do buy online, pick up in store, they typically have an attachment rate of coming in and buying nearly 30% more. Because really? they're picking up the pants, but then maybe they're getting socks or a shirt or a jacket. Other items. So Professor Galloway over at NYU Stern was a previous guest, and he talks about physical stores as distributed warehouse chains that will have been a huge advantage that chains like Macy's and Neiman Marcus have over Amazon in, in their um, category groups. They seem to have come to that realization somewhat late. Are they making up for that That being a little uh, behind the eight ball? What, what's the future for their look like? I think basically we're not going to see a country that's overrun by warehouses. And I think companies and retailers are using part of their stores as they begin to encompass more digital and omni-channel initiatives as supplying goods. And it could be buy online, pick up in store, buy on, ship, ship to home from store, either one. And frankly, the cost of doing this fulfillment is not cheap. So figuring out ways to economize and maybe making retail space more productive, using some of the space that maybe backroom space for distribution purposes, yes, we're seeing that. So you just said something that surprised me. You said it's not cheap. I, I ordered a monster snowblower that I got with Amex points um, from Lowe's and it was buy online, pick up in store. I got one bigger than they actually had in the stores. And I just assumed, oh, that's a free marginal sale for them. But you're implying that there's a cost to them for this. You bet. The cost to be able to ship that item, if you're not fully on stock, you need to ship two boxes or three boxes in order to have the order fully intact. That doesn't come cheap. And that's why what you see is physical stores overall typically are profitable. E-commerce helps drive sales. The combination of the two, that multi-channel shopper is your most productive shopper. Huh, quite interesting. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is retailing expert Dana Telsey. Uh, she runs her own shop called Telsey Advisory Group, or TAG, as it's better known. You may know her from her days at Bear Stearns. Let's let's talk about both physical stores and, and some specific companies. I, I have to bring up Nike because I had reference to you. I wanted to talk about Nike, and that was before we knew the earnings were going to be so spectacular. Not too long ago, I was in the Beaverton, Oregon employee store. And cool. Came, I love their campus. Insane. Totally insane. It makes insane. you want to be a runner and, and immediately. And I picked up a whole bunch of dry fit tennis garb, sort of reluctant, like, wow, this stuff is real. even at employee prices, this is really expensive. And now I am a total convert. 
you could play two hours of tennis, sweat till the old, and you're perfectly comfortable. And it's, I bet you're winning more too. I wouldn't go that far. I still stink. But the, it's not apparel. It's technology. That's mm-hmm. a really... A whole new material science, isn't it? It's a new material science. you got to check out their new store that opened in Soho. It's absolutely awesome. You should speak to Tahiti. She basically works in their customization area. Right. And you know what? Nike isn't just active anymore. It's urban culture. Really? Yes, because people are wearing activewear, not just to play sports on the field. They're wearing it out to dinner. They're wearing it shopping on the weekends. You name it, it's really integrated with work, weekend, and gym, consumers are mixing and matching. Work, weekend, and gym. That, that's really quite fascinating. So let's talk about a couple of other stores. Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Macy's. All these stores not too long ago, people were questioning whether they would ever make the leap to digital, the leap to online, and, and do it well. All four of these are, are greatly improved. Who, who really seems to understand online of that group. Well, it's very interesting because look what Walmart did where they acquired Jet.com and mm-hmm. Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, now says, we're an e-commerce company. So they're looking to move to that next. When you think about Macy's, look what they're doing with reevaluating their real estate, taking a look at categories and really making enhancements there. They're looking to next. Look what Best Buy is doing, branded shop and shops. And you can't forget Nordstrom and all of this, who basically have acquired companies in order to better integrate digital with online. So I think the department stores have been a bit ahead of the game. And now you're seeing Walmart really involve and get integrated with online. Let, let's talk about a category that I think is just perplexing. The teen retailers. You look at Abercrombie and Fitch. This was, what were they, $8 billion, $7 billion, and now barely a billion dollars. How can anybody adequately evaluate these companies when you think about American Eagle? Go, go through the whole list of, of teen retailers. The A's. They're, they're impossible to keep up with, and they all seem to be on fire one quarter, and then that's it. It's like a, the, the Fed is over. How do you stay on top of that? got to be in the stores. You got to be in the stores, but you also have to check online. I put out this new product, the Weekly Trend Report, that basically looks at online sites last week and this week and what's changed, and a lot changes. It keeps you in the know because it shows you the prices and it shows you what's trending and not trending. So how do I stay on top of it? You have to watch what a Forever 21 and H&M and Azar is doing and watch what the A's are doing. Logo is the no, A's. That's what they are. <laughs> Logos are no longer the comfort factor that they used to be because the teens of 10 years ago, they were into logo. The teens of today, not into logo. The teens of today are into more fashion, more what patterns are, more what is trending, and that's activewear. So take a look at American Eagle lately. They put a whole new sport window in their store windows and also on online. They're going to capture a new trend. And take a look what limited brands, L Brands is doing with Victoria's Secret. Mm -hmm. Pink is hot and it drives the most traffic. So the teen retailers have gotten more competition incoming from the fast fashion retailers, more competition. Fast fashion. Okay. Fast fashion like Zara, like H&M, like Forever 21, speed to market in terms of goods and what's trending. And then if you don't buy it then, it may not be in stock. Really? It's that it's that quick. What about some of the luxury retailers out there? I don't recall if you still cover Coach and Tiffany All and Matlock. Yep. So so they had a huge run and the past couple of years, not so great. What's the, going on there? And I think one of the things that's changed there, same thing. You need product innovation. And product innovation, take a look at what Coach has done. They brought in Stuart Vevers. They ha- now have 
new models and new camp new marketing campaigns that are attracting the millennial consumer mm -hmm. and so they've become a reinvigorated brand and so the handbag space alone now smaller bags so you're not getting the same high same aur but what are you doing for newness check out the new coach flagship store on 53rd 54th street and fifth avenue it's quite the experience really so luxury goods overall we had Weak tourism in 2016 in the United mm -hmm. States, the strong dollar impacted. You don't know with some of these new lower tax laws that could be incoming could help the local consumer. And what you're seeing is the Chinese are starting to travel again. LVMH's latest results talked about it. Tiffany saw some improvement in tourism. You saw Coach talk about some improvement in tourism. And even Macy's saw that tourism drops less worse than they had been. So fingers crossed for a better 2017. So what about some of the other, you meant, we talked about Nike, some of the other athletic brands, Athleta, Athleta, I don't know how I'm pronouncing At, that. Yep, that's part of Gap, and they basically have very good success online. Take a look at Adidas. I mean, they just opened a new flagship too. Take a look at that gym stadium, what it looks like. Mm -hmm. got, they have the Trend Right product now, and that makes it exciting. And don't leave out Kevin Plank from Under Armour, because Under Armour has big aspirations, and what they did, whether it's buying different apps, they're creating an Under Armour community. Huh, that, that's quite fascinating. Uh, earlier you mentioned Best Buy. Here, That's another example. In 06, it was a $60 stock. It plummeted to $11. That's a $27 billion to $4 billion drop. And now it's not too far from its all-time highs. It's back to $47, $48. Uh, what do you make of Best Buy and what's driving that recovery? They fought back up against Amazon. And they fought back against showrooming. Prices are now the same where they match. Customers can have the item same day. 40% of Best Buy's online orders are picked up at the store. Wait, wait. Say that again. 40% of online. Is picked so up at the store. So people bypass the whole salesman retail exit. Order online, show up with a, a receipt, and they bring it out to your car. Bring it, And also, maybe you want to buy some extra things while you're there. Mm -hmm. That's been very effective for them, along with the fact vendors need and want Best Buy to thrive. They need that physical presence and location. How important is it for vendors that there's a legitimate competitor to Amazon? Very important. You want to be able to have diversification among your customer base. Mm -hmm. It makes pricing rational. So um, what about some of the other specialty shores? Warby Parker seems to have come out of out of nowhere. It's very exciting. Uh, and then Jet.com, that was pretty quick from startup to, to total sale. Uh, who else is out there? Who else is interesting we might not have heard about? Well, that's that real reel on the consignment store, ThreadUp, Tradesy, all very interesting in terms thread of- up. What is ThreadUp? Consignment, something you don't wear then you may want to sell it and be able to buy something else. So you're going to sell it on some of these apparel consignment sites. Mm -hmm. That makes it that makes it interesting. Carbon 38 in the activewear, that's been super interesting also in terms of some of the on-trend activewear sites. That's appealing too. So how many of these stores are you going to on a regular basis? Are you out of the office every day? I'm in stores every weekend. I am out in stores at least two to three times a week. Any city I go to, I always spend my time going, to, part of the time going to malls and going to see a store. So so take me through uh, a day in the life of, of Dana Telsey. Because I know you're always, so for people who are listening to this, Dana and I actually used to be in the same building, and we were constantly bumping into each other, usually as she was running out of the building like it was on fire. 
What's a day in the life of Dana Telsey like? It, you know, there is no typical day. And part of the reason there's no typical day, it depends who you're interacting with and talking with. It starts with what's happening globally, what I see macro-wise, what's on the news that night, going into the office, checking out what the stocks are doing, and then whether it's meetings for the day, whether it's meeting with companies for the day, I'm learning all day long. And I'm a student. And I'm so lucky to be able to be attuned and have the ability to speak to some of these business leaders. It's I'm I'm learning, and knowledge is knowledge is what's great. And then also, so I have my research hat, where basically I'm listening to conference calls, talking to companies, going into stores. We have the Telsey Consumer Fund, which is a long short consumer hedge fund. It's up around double digits this year so far, and so we're in the midst of asset raising for that fund. And each day. It's something a little bit different, but it's always about the people. So that's for that's for 2016. We say we don't really care about predictions and forecasts for 2017, but tell us about some of the trends you see shifting in the coming year. Structural change is something that we have in the consumer landscape that we've never seen before. Structural change, and, and how does that manifest? What that it's about that's about online and what's happening with companies becoming physical and digital at the same time. That's about the mobile phone becoming the new way to communicate. That's about data and loyalty programs, about how does a retailer stay on top? Got to know more about your customer and be able to interpret the data that you receive. It's about speed, and that's a competitive advantage, whether it's ordering a product delivered to that customer's home. How do you be faster and in stock so that customer comes to you again? And that's what every single brand is looking to be. I think brands have value. They have meaning because do you want to be part of the club? Brands will give you pricing and a pricing umbrella. And if you have the innovative product, that's what gives you a life cycle. We've been speaking with Dana Telsey. She runs the Telsey Advisory Group covering all manners of retail stock. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things retail. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Dana, thank you so much for doing this. I've been I've been looking forward to this um, for a while. There, there's so much retail stuff I can talk about. Um, we didn't talk, mention this in the broadcast portion, but I grew up, my father owns a, a chain of, of sporting goods stores. They had three sneakers and sportswear, sweatshirts. I remember when I was a kid, the champion mm-hmm. sweatshirts right. were, were huge. And he used to occasionally bring sneakers home and say, here's a new brand, Pony. See how you like them. I remember that brand. And I was like, these are great. If I like them, they would toast. I'm like, oh, Got these it. are fantastic. <laughs> right in right in the tube. So I've been- Did you work in the store? Sure. Which is why I went to grad school, because I said, I am never working retail again. You have to have a certain, you have to have tolerance and patience and the ability to be empathetic with people. I have none of that. So, Got it. So, so it's good I am, you're doing what you're doing I, now. Let me tell you, it was it was motivating because people don't realize that's a hard job. Standing on your feet all day, the hours are long, folding. I mean, there's a reason they like to talk to customers. And, and people are, I think it's worse today than it was when I was a kid where there was some civil discourse and decor. 
Now, I, I've I've watched people be so rude to sales help and so rude to cashiers. I waited tables in, in college. And so I've always, whenever anybody is rude to a waiter, it's always, oh, you don't know what goes on in the kitchen, do you? You probably shouldn't eat what you just ordered because you've been way too rude to that guy. But it, it's a really tough job. I think it's a tough job and the good ones, hard to find. I, I and they're worth say, their weight in gold. How do you evaluate the retail sales staff uh, of a big you know, chain? Can, can you do that? How much can they control the quality of their sales you staff? Can, you can tell if people feel they're on a winning team or not, or not on a winning team. Mm -hmm. Are more hours being allocated to that particular store and labor hours in order to make the store nicer? Take a look at the way some of the stores look in terms of the care that's put into them. So you can tell if people care. Just like you walk in an office, you can tell what the mood is. You 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 can walk into a store and say, "This is a good staff. Everybody's happy here." Well, you know, you can say, you you talk to the salespeople, engage them in conversation. What what's happening? I need to buy something for my mom. What would you suggest? What's working? You having fun here? Just talk to people. They're human beings too, and they want to talk also. You do you cover um, any of the restaurants or food stores like Starbucks? Our company does. Yes. So Bob so, Darrington does a great job. So what do you think of what's going on um, in Starbucks and and. What else is interesting out there in, in restaurant world? Restaurant world is where you've had the most new concepts of crazy, any single right? segment. And that's because look at all the Instagram pictures people take of their food. It, do is that So I do that. I, I don't Instagram. I tweet more than Instagram. Okay. But Shake Shack and Chick-fil-A and go down the list. Is Instagram really driving traffic or Twitter driving helps, traffic? Yes. I have a, I just got a Twitter account also, and I'm putting pictures up and showing people things, and all of a sudden people listen. They want to see what see what you're showing, and yes, it does. I think it helps to drive traffic. It makes people more brand aware, and I love putting putting pictures up on my Twitter account. I mean, all of a sudden you have new followers. So so what is going on in food other than the burger wars and the what about organic? What about ramen and the whole noodle trend ramen that's is, out there? Now, how much of that is Manhattan and how much of that is the rest of the country? It's going the rest of the country, too. Is it really? It's definitely the coast first, but then it's going the rest of the country. And what about everything that's happening with sweet greens and... Local farm-to-table is all over. Huge. Not just Manhattan. I, I live on the North Shore of Long Island. Two of our favorite new restaurants are both... One is called uh, Asteria Liana, is a little mm -hmm. place in Oyster Bay, and the other place uh, is called, I always get this wrong, Roots, Beats, in, mm -hmm. in um, I want to say Syosset or Jericho. The food is delicious. It's always crazy fresh. And when you look at the menu, you're not just ordering. It's, here's, this comes from Rothkamp Farms, this comes from here, this comes from the North Fork. All the local wine, all the local ales, that seems to be a huge, yeah. huge trend. And look at Blue Apron and Plated. All of a sudden now, all of coming these companies, to your house. it's coming to you. And you're cooking it. They're giving you the exact right amount of ingredients. And why? It's speed. It basically mm -hmm. makes it faster. And what is it creating? An experience. Because all of a sudden, you're cooking with your friends or whatever it may be. So Blue Apron, Plated, Organic, Ramen. That's the future. Now, what does that mean to supermarkets if you don't have to go kill out 45 minutes driving to the local supermarket, running through the uh, through the various aisles, picking up, and then first bringing it home to Makes cook. it much more competitive. But look at the prepared food section of some of these supermarkets. Mm -hmm. Look what Kroger has done with organics. They've been able to capture that trend, too, and make the prices competitive for all income-level consumers. 
That that's really interesting. Um, do you still you don't cover Whole Foods, do you? My colleague Joe Feldman, who has worked with me forever, he's the superstar of supermarkets and hardlines discounters and mm-hmm. all things out of the mall. I'm all things in the mall. He basically he covers the supermarkets <laughs> and is a huge fan of Kroger. Likes Kroger. Likes, likes what Kroger. they've been. Li- mm-hmm. Likes what they've been doing. Yep. That that that's really quite. And there's new competition coming in. Aldi, Lidl from overseas. You've got Walmart, obviously having a big part of their business being food too. What what about these new Amazon cashierless supermarkets? What is going on with that? That's going to be very interesting. That and driverless cars. That's like the new world of how we're going to consume. Right now, that's only available to employees. But it just goes to show you speed, technology, all wrapped up into one. It's a game changer. When can I send my driverless car out to pick up my dinner and bring it home and cook it for me? Let's wait. Let's wait another five years. Two thousand twenty-two, something like that. But but these new supermarkets, the cashierless, the the driven by not the usual supermarket folks. Right. Um. So it's Amazon. You like Kroger. Uh. Mm-hmm. You like what they're doing. Yes, we do. Who Who else is doing interesting things in that space? I think some of the privately held supermarkets, Publix is doing some interesting things. Mm-hmm. Wegmans, obviously. Wegmans is going to be opening in the Natick Mall in 2018. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing some of those private supermarkets also do interesting things. That, that's kind of that's kind of fascinating. So we went through a lot of questions. I'm just curious if there's anything I, I missed. What what sectors of retail did we not talk about that you think is, is kind of interesting these days? I think days? the apparel manufacturers are interesting. Ralph Lauren, PVH, VF Corp, they really own their brands. PVH is who? Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger oh, okay, is what they it. own. And these companies are global businesses. They're now doing more of their own direct-to-consumer stores, and they're looking to enhance their in-store shops and some of the better department stores. Branded companies that allocators of capital in taking brands and making them grow. So I think it's something you want to watch. So let, let's go through that list. So at, at this point, everybody knows Ralph Lauren, I would imagine. And there's a, it's a work in progress. The way forward plan that the new CEO, Stefan Larson, put in place, he's executing on the operational enhancements. So what, what are they doing? Because I think of, yeah, this shirt is Ralph Lauren, and I don't know who the sweater is. I'm going to guess Lord and Taylor. Uh, so I think of them as the polo shirts. I think of them as... Um, sweaters and other sort of traditionally preppy things. What are they doing to move beyond that? So you're going to see in the fall of 2017 some enhancements to their iconic products. So wait, you're you're looking at product almost a year in advance. You got to. You got. You, it, it's that long of a lead time. It takes a, that. That'll shift over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're looking to get their lead times down from 15 months to nine months, and that's a work in progress right now. And that's why you see some of the fast fashion retailers. They're super quick. But brands like Ralph Lauren, who are first now becoming more modernized, more up to date, uh-huh. I think you're going to see the product become that way too. So PVH you mentioned was um, Calvin and Tommy, to- not Tommy Bahama. Tommy, Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy, Tommy Hilfiger. Bahama's Oxford Industries. And who else does Oxford Industries have? Lily Pulitzer. That's been so popular. That's the the pink and greens. Is that yes. what we're? Uh... And the other one that's like that in a privately held way, Vineyard Vines. Oh, sure. Everyone's a fan of Vineyard Vines these days. So these are, all these names we're talking about, they've been around a couple of years. They're all well known. Who, how do you identify or what, tell me about your process to look for, hey, this is an interesting company. There are some legs here. How do you, how do you sift through all that options to, to find the diamond in the rough? So a couple different ways. 
I look at what's trending online. I look at Instagram. I look at bloggers. Bloggers are your new celebrities in terms of what they're endorsing or what they're wearing. Fashion bloggers. Totally. That's how you're able to pick up on trends. And so- Really? Yes. Able to see what's trending and what's working. So I watch the bloggers. I watch who's who's watching them and who their followers are, what the Instagram leads are. Then I look in the stores and I see what's happening, talking to salespeople. Mm-hmm. You can look online all you want and you can see what's trending. Not but really, the same. T- It's not the same. You got to marry that with going into the stores also. So this we've been reading about the so-called uh, social media influencers. It, is that... And I've also been reading about how those metrics can be gamed. Is that a real important thing to driving a specific product sales? How, how it is. It's is become that? part of that. I mean, look at the fashion shows now, where all of a sudden it's brought it's brought to your living room. And these fashion bloggers, if they're wearing things, if all of a sudden the right celebrities look at Selena Gomez and, right. and their Kardashians and Kendall Jenner. They make a real difference in being able to attract millennials because everyone wants to be part of a club that they want to be like them. And that's what happens. That, that, that's astonishing. So we, we've talked about online. We've talked about physical stores. We've talked about brands. Um, the one company I haven't asked you about is Apple. Um, the Apple stores, to this day, even though their their sales numbers seem to have their growth rate is slowed down. Every time I go to an Apple store, they're still jam-packed. What What's going on with that? Look at the ecosystem that they created. Look at all the Apple users that they have. So you have, either have to go to the Genius Bar, you're upgrading and people seem to be upgrading faster. Uh-huh. And yet what you're gonna see is the Apple stores themselves, they're reinventing themselves. Take a look at the newest store downtown at Westfield's Oculus. Uh-huh. Pretty cool in terms of what they put together there. and. It's basically a collaborative engagement, sales associates and the customers, and looking to sell them more of the Apple products. Who else is competitive in terms of driving their own retail sales through their own stores? Apple seemed to have created a niche that didn't exist previously, at least not for technology stores. You know what else? Cosmetic stores. Look at Sephora, absolutely packed. Look at Ulta, absolutely packed. Really? Off price, look at TJX, Ross Stores, and Burlington. People like the treasure hunt atmosphere. It's too time consuming. But a lot of people, they love spending it, their time that way. If you the have hunt. more if you have if you have the time for it and the interest, sure, you can certainly find great deals. Take it, a look at their checkout lines. They've got the time. I I would <laughs> I would guess what else is is striking you as interesting and different these days? What's really capturing your attention? I think the things that are capturing my attention is Companies overall that are updating and enhancing their brands, what are they doing with the investment in technology in terms of data? How are they enhancing speed? How are you incorporating that so-called experience or collaborative engagement? Uh Food matters and being able to create an event that marries the, whether it's food, whether it's an activity, that's what's that's what's interesting. It's not just about selling an item, it's selling the experience. So let's talk about the technology side of this a little bit. And I don't mean Apple or Amazon, I mean the traditional retailers. What are they doing to take advantage of the fact that everyone walks around with a supercomputer in their pocket? H- how are they using that? Loyalty programs. A lot of retailers today are enhancing and updating their loyalty programs so that they know the preferences of those consumers. That's what technology allows them to do. 
Today, it used to be just around 10% of CapEx spending was spent on technology. Now, for some retailers, it could be up to 40%. 40%. Is there anything competitive with the um, uh, with the Starbucks app? I know that when I come into the city, as soon as I'm above ground, the first thing I do is order breakfast and a cup of coffee. It's pretty easy, isn't it? And, and by the time there's a Starbucks on the ground floor of, of my building... By the time I walk the three blocks to the building, they uh, they walk in. They're like, "Here, they're handing it to you." There's no interaction with a, a cash register. It's the easiest thing in the world. And I always look at the people online and wonder, how come they haven't figured out the app is so awesome? I think people need to know more about, it, and I agree with you. But think about the other cultural changes there. What about Uber? What about Lyft? Those are the other things too. So, so what does Uber do for retailers? Because I recall hearing at one point in time, people wanted to use Uber as a delivery service for a physical Uber retailers. is a delivery service or take them to the mall. Or now look at people when they're going out at night to, to have dinner and if they're having something to drink, they don't need to drive themselves. So there's a service, we were just talking about this yesterday over dinner. There, there's two interesting services that are both local. I don't know if they're national. One is called Via, okay, which is an it, it's sort of like a group Uber and it's just going north-south on the main thoroughfares in Manhattan and east-west. And you get in, it's five bucks, and they take you to wherever you're going. And then you get out, and it's basically uh, a, a group Uber. And the other, I'm trying to remember. Have the you name. used it? I haven't, but people Pretty in my convenient. office has. right. For sure. Especially if you're coming from Penn Station and you right. have to go, go cross town or, or anything like that. The other one I heard about is kind of fascinating. You're out on a Friday night, and I don't know if this is in Manhattan, but I know it's definitely on Long Island, you you order a driver. And what I mean by that is a car will show up, someone will come out, they will get in your car and drive you home, followed by the other car, who then picks them up and takes them wherever they want to go. I've never heard of that. That's and very smart. No DUI, no worrying about driving under the influence. It's, hey, we could go out. We don't need to... to very it, smart. And it's, that's an actual legitimate business. That's amazing, isn't yeah, it? I think there's all new services and businesses that are being created. Look at, look at Postmates, for example. All of a I sudden, don't know Postmates. What is let's Postmates? Say you want a, let's say you want a Chanel lipstick you're going out or uh-huh. whatever it is, which, whatever cosmetics you want, but you don't have time to go to any of the stores. You can basically order it and they'll deliver it to you. Physically to you, not Physically through the mail. You. No, it's, it'll get it's to you. It's messenger yes. to you. And look at like Net-a-Porte. They're getting goods to you within an hour or two hours. That's, and that's speed. That's really high-end stuff, though, isn't it? Very is much that, so. Is that going to work its way down to the to us plebs? It's working in urban areas. So we there's have to a density. It. Yes. So it's a combination of income density right. and delivery is relatively exactly. easy. Exactly. You're not covering a lot of um, a mm-hmm. lot of square footage. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time before before you have to. Go on with your day. Let let me go to some of my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, we started talking about your background with Ron Barron. So you went from Ron Barron to C.J. Lawrence to Bear. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. And so uh, you were at was C.J. Lawrence. Were they acquired or they were acquired by Deutsche Bank? That's exactly. Right. All right. So how long were you there for? I was at Barron Capital for seven years. Mm-hmm. I was at C.J. Lawrence for three years. And I was at Bear Stearns for 12 years. And if memory serves, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but you left Bear pretty well-timed, if, if I got that right. 
I left in 06 before it went away in 2008. And and I hope you managed to liquidate some of your stock. I was fortunate to be, uh, fortunate enough to be able to start TAG. TAG had been in the pro, in the planning for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and now we're going to be celebrating our 11th birthday. So I, we really haven't talked at all about you as a woman working on Wall Street. Bear Stearns had a reputation as a kind of rough and tumble place, but you, you don't strike me as a shrinking violet or anything like that. I, and I've asked this to all the women I've interviewed, what's it like being a woman in, in an environment that sometimes is just overwrought with, with male stupidity? I think prove your capability and show that you're capable, that you're able, that you can drive market share, can drive business, and it works. Every, the capability is what I'm all about, being able to show that you have the ability, that you're recognized by clients, and that you do just as good work, if not better, than others. So I believe in the ability of people. So it's a true meritocracy. That's what I believe in. Show what you can do. That that works. T- tell us a little bit about some of your early mentors. Obviously, Ron Barron. It's Ron Barron, who taught me about everything that I've known. I mean, Sig Segalis at Jenison is just someone I look up to every day in, mm-hmm. in terms of what he's doing. I mean, I've watched Mario Gabelli for years and watched his success in creating value and how he thinks about value companies. So it's so many of these money managers who have been so influential in what in what I do. Bill Miller at Leg Mason, I mean, he was one of the first investors I met on the sell side. And his... His ability to glean insights was tremendous. Mm-hmm. He, he, both Gabelli and Miller have been guests on the show. They're fascinating, fascinating guys. Miller said something that I thought was so astute. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gabelli said a million things. Yeah. That and and he was really fascinating. Miller said, you know, the problem with active management is an active management. It's that most of the active managers are closet indexers. And I've never quite heard it put the way he did. That was very in- that's very interesting. He said, "If you're going to be if you're going to be a high cost active manager, you have to be different from the index. But if you're going to be a closet indexer and be high cost, of course, of course, investors are going to leave you. Right. What's what's the point? He he's really quite a fascinating guy. I didn't realize you uh, mm-hmm. you had you had known him. Oh yes. Um, who let's talk about other investors. Who else influenced your approach to? Thinking about research, thinking about the product you create for for the buy side investor. I think in terms of the product that we create for the buy side investor, you have to be able to answer all different types of questions. You look at investors who are growth investors. You look at GARP investors. You look at deep value investors. So you have to be able to answer those questions. And basically what I learned about, look at Steve Mandel. Steve Mandel of Lone Pine. I was in his group years ago when I was on the buy side. Mm -hmm. And he taught me how to understand brands. And he taught me about the 360-degree loop of the productivity cycle, something that's pretty creative. Explain that. What is the 360-degree loop of the productivity cycle? It's basically how do you manage inventory, the velocity at which it sells, the margin at at which you earn, and the turnover of the inventory to help drive earnings growth. And so that's consistent, and that's what loop. takes place. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that, that makes some sense. Um, any other investors really change the way you think about, about retail? I think in terms of th- thinking about retail, I think it's a host of investors. There isn't, and frankly, it's company executives too. Les sure. Wexner, for example, of L Brands, I learn something new from him every time because to me, he's the dean of retail, and he sees into the future, and he always makes his brand younger and younger. That's how he stays relevant. So I think that's something that's to be gleaned and, and watched carefully. Michael Gould, 
mm-hmm. former CEO of Bloomingdale's, Michael Gould, Gould, complete engagement with the customer, engagement with his staff. That's what makes the experience and what he created so special. I did a show, um, I think it was uh, Stephanie Rule early one morning, and I had never met Gould before. And I have no idea who this gentleman is sitting next to me. And we started this conversation about retail. And I, during the break, I turned to Stephanie and go, this guy's great. Who is he? I, and I believe the comment was, idiot, that's the head of Bloomingdale's. Like, oh. My, Although it's Stephanie, so it was a little salty. Michael Gould's belief in people, his training and mentorship, best in class. He, he was really, really. But one time I met him, he, he very much uh, he, he very much stayed with me. Let's talk a little bit about books. It's always a favorite subject here. What are some of your favorite books? And I don't care if it's fiction, nonfiction, investing related or not. What do you like to read? I love to read all the periodicals. I'm a huge Barron's reader, Wall Street Journal, Business Week reader, I just, Financial Times. And then I read what's relevant to my industry, Women's Wear Daily, Business of Fashion. I like staying current because I don't believe you can look back. I'm all about looking forward. So- the list you just named, that's 40 hours a week worth of reading easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're plowing through all those periodicals. That's why I get to the office at five in the morning. Got to really? be able to know what's happening. Women's Wear Daily is still very relevant? Yes, it is. It's relevant to the industry. It gives you a pulse. Business of Fashion is relevant too. WGSN is very relevant. What, what is Business of Fashion? basically takes key topics in the consumer world uh-huh. and talks about how different companies are integrate are being integrated. So literally business yeah, of fashion. It's called the business of fashion. I, I didn't even know such a thing existed. That, that's fascinating. And the last one you mentioned, the other one right after that? WGSN. Uh-huh. Interesting so also. So W was a big magazine for a long time, And it still right? is. It's not, women's wear, it's not the same as Women's Wear Daily, uh-huh. but it still is. And there isn't any of those fashion magazines I don't read too because I want to pick up on the trends. So you'll so if you're thumbing through a glamour or a red book or whatever, you're actually seeing things yep. that you might not see elsewhere. And I'll go back to merch and say, wait, I now saw six dark maroon boots. Is dark maroon the it trend that I should be noticing? Because I'm a believer in patterns. If you book, uh-huh. put together patterns, patterns can become reality of what consumers adopt. And I'm all out there trying to understand what they're adopting now, what they're not adopting now, and what the future could be. So if enough people are advertising and enough people are seeing it and enough people are buying it, that that becomes a full-blown trend. And marrying that with the quantitative, what could that mean to sales? What could that mean to margins? Which companies does it benefit? That's the story of retail analysis. So you've been covering retail for over 20 years. Um, What's changed since you joined the industry? What is different about covering retail stocks today than than when you started? Everything. Everything. And everything in terms of how fast goods are produced, how you learn about goods, emailing, blogging, Instagramming, what what's changed is physical stores. They're smaller, what's changed, some of them smaller in terms of size, and there's definitely more destination spending. What about online? And what about the global reach? So everything's changed about retailing and what it is today. I know it won't be in 10 years, but I'm going to be there to watch every path of it. Because Remember, I've got a grandmother who's 102 years old. Wow. <coughs> God bless you. So, so you have good genes and you're going to be doing this for a long time. It's not a job. Words. It's my life. I wake up in Your the morning. Your grandmother anxious. is 102 years yes, old. Yes, she is. That's really impressive. Thank you. 
Um, that that's some really good genes. We'll we'll take some blood from you on the way out. Just to <laughs> run a we'll run a little genetic study. Um, so we just you talked about all the things that have changed. And then the other big thing is going to be, I believe, in this theory of ization, personalization. Theory of ization. So how a company is going to be different? Because now, if you know more about the customer. There's personalization. Mm -hmm. There is localization out there. Mm -hmm. There is customization out there and regionalization. So now businesses wow. that were big become smaller too. The blending of mobile and technology are very influential to consumer spending, and they're only going to become more so. And what that could give you opportunity, gives sales opportunity, and it gives margin opportunity. Hello, earnings growth. And so, that's what we're looking so for. So you just answered my next question. What that was past, what what's future? Mm -hmm. Um so let me shift gears. This is a question that always comes from a, a certain emailer. Uh what do you do outside of the office to stay physically fit? What do you do to stay mentally acute? And what do you just do to relax or for enjoyment when you're not shopping? So basically that or, is, a, I, that I, is way, enjoyment for me. By the way, I shouldn't say that. Because I don't mean it in a denigrating way, but I know there are going to be some. Uh, when you're out doing, my wife and I call, jokingly call it economic research. When you're out doing research, when you're out in retail stores, I don't mean shopping in a. Uh, I hope that doesn't come across. No, no, and, no, it's fine. Because yeah. you know what I mean. I when know you're exactly out I mean. looking at stores, when, checking, you're, yeah. when you're kicking tires, yeah. uh, effectively, you're out in store shopping. When you're not doing that, so what I'm, do you do I'm to doing that all the time mm -hmm. by walking, traveling, swimming, or all the things going to restaurants. I want to see culture mm -hmm. and be able to see how that integrates into retail. And what do you do to, to relax if you want to just kick back? That's the walking part. I mean, that's right. what it is. I mean, that's b being outside and seeing the sky because right. um, we're always in offices all the time sure. and seeing what's new. and. Typing like, oh, here's the trend. Here's the trend. You got to because you're not going to remember things right away. So I love typing and just writing it down. That that's really that's really interesting. Um, all right, my last two questions. These are my favorite questions. If a millennial were to come to you or someone just starting their career and say, "I'm interested in becoming a retail analyst," what sort of advice would you give them? I'd say find a category, find a topic that you love that you want to be an expert at. Think about it. I was fortunate. Ron Barron gave me the opportunity. I tried trading. I tried being a salesperson. And I found I loved the 10Ks, the 10Qs, and understanding companies. Find something that you love, that you want to spend all the time at to become an expert. Being an expert gives you the ability to have answers or be able to be valued and to have insight. And that's what you have to find. Find a mentor who you can learn from. That, that's quite interesting. And my final question before we get thrown out of here um, what is it that you know about covering retail today that you wish you knew when you started those years ago? What pitfalls companies can get into and how they can emerge from them. So give us a couple of examples. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating thing because very often we, we fall in love with these companies and the next thing we know they stumble and, hey, how did that happen and, and how do they turn themselves around? So look, you have companies – like a coach, it stumbled, it became mm -hmm. over-distributed, now it's become less distributed, they reinvigorate. When you say over-distributed, they, they were somewhat of a limited... In too many department stores. And then, then they were, once they're everywhere, they, they lose a little yeah. prestige. And also managing their stores more carefully, investing in marketing. Mm -hmm. Look at L Brands, what's happening now. L Brands got rid of, is getting rid of swimwear, they're reducing the level of promotions to come out a healthier brand and attract younger, younger consumers. So... 
You have to evaluate when a brand stumbles, is there a way back or is there just not a way back? When you look at, for example, today you just had the apparel company, um, Limited Brands, mm -hmm. which is the old apparel store. It's not part of Limited. Um, you just had that file for Chapter 11. Didn't come back. Why? They didn't provide differentiation. Right. When you think of other companies, providing differentiation is what allows you to, to survive. That, that's the key. We have been speaking with Dana Telsey of the Telsey Advisory Group. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 110 or so such prior conversations. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure and email us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. If people want to find your work, I forgot to ask you this before. It's Telsey. Email me, dtelsey at telseygroup.com. And the website is? telseygroup.com. Easy enough. Yeah. Uh, we've been speaking with Dana Telsey. I would be remiss if I did not forget, if I, I'm going to say that again. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Michael Batnick, the head of research, who helped prepare all of these questions. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.